Okay. All right. So we are going to be on page 49, left-hand side. Um, the end of the paragraph. We've been discussing the mind ruling the heart, that one can divert their attention altogether from the cravings of the heart towards the complete opposite direction, particularly... in the direction of holiness. Meaning, that all, everything we've set up until now, as someone made a comment yesterday, is really just basic human maturity, right? But when you add the notion that you are moving not just from your lusts of your heart to where your mind really is at, that that's natural, but especially when the mind is illuminated with holiness, then it is even more easy, it is even more clear, it is even more direct. Why? Thus it is written, when I, then I saw that wisdom ex, excelleth folly. Isn't that a great word, excelleth? Excelleth. Excelleth. Is it related to excels? It, it is related excelleth. to excels. Um, excelleth folly, as light excelleth darkness. Well, that was useful. <laughs> In the beginning of the new paragraph, new paragraph, new paragraph, right hand column, sorry, left hand column, sorry, left hand column. Excelleth. <laughs> no, actually. Excelleth. Does not mean excels. Although they're related. So I'm going to. What? Okay. So. Um, the Hebrew is Yisrein. Isi sheyesh Yisrein l'chachma. Yisrein comes from the word more. It is, yeah, it is more. It is superior. It is better than, greater than, superior to. Right? So, I, I think excelleth is probably like it, it, it um, and that something means something that, which makes sense because the word excels in English means that you've like done really well, right? Okay, so there's something called wisdom and folly, and there's light and there's darkness. Okay, and the person who said this, anyone who says this statement that's written, anyone know? Shlomo Hamelach, Shlomo the wise man, the wisest of all men. Okay, so we have a idea that wisdom is superior to folly and we have an analogy the way light is superior to darkness okay now um, he's going to go on to explain but I want to use this opportunity to um, say an unrelated to the Tanya but very wise lesson relating to the idea of wisdom and folly which I feel is an opportune time to say since we've mentioned in the Tanya wisdom and folly which is as follows. If you are wise and someone else is foolish, you should not argue with them. Why not? Because you're better. It's like picking on the girl. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you say picking on the girl? <laughs> yes. That reminds me of, a, of, a just the, of something. One time, I think it was, was it, was it this year? No, it was back when we were learning chapter four. So that must have been... It was in last year. So, yeah. I think it was only in chapter. Anyway, a while ago, um, 
Yeah, no, because when we were all set up with Corona with that, it was in the aquarium and everything. <laughs> so I gave an analogy, um, and the analogy involved a doctor and a nurse. And I was very careful in my use of pronouns, not to in any way indicate the doctor was male and the nurse was female. I mean, then I asked a question. I don't remember what the analogy was for, what it was about, but I was just very careful about that. And um, one of the students proceeded to answer the question using male pronouns for the doctor and female pronouns for the nurse. And I said, I think this is kind of ironic that I, the ultra-Orthodox rabbi, am being very careful that you know, the doctor could have been a woman and the nurse could have been a man, and you're going around with you know, your sexist tropes. So, yes. It's a car accident. <laughs> Father dies. They rush the son to the hospital. The doctor comes in and says, I can't operate. This is my son. How could that be? Okay. Right. But in context, if it's you don't not. Know what uh, right. it takes people yeah. days to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes. So, yeah, picking on the girl. Um, no, so you should, ne- you should never get, if you are wise and someone is foolish, you should never get into a, an argument with them. And the reason is as follows. By very definition, being foolish means they cannot appreciate your wisdom. So the argument cannot take place on the level of wisdom. Therefore, it must take place on the level of foolishness. And when it comes to foolishness, they are much better at it than you are. It's a very, very wise words. Think about it. If you're going to have an argument with someone and you are wise and they are foolish, not you are wise and they're less wise than you, that's it. They're wise and they're foolish, right? Well, if they're foolish, then by definition it means that they cannot engage you with wisdom. So which means the argument is going to operate according to foolishness. And when it comes to foolishness, the fool is more proficient than the wise person. Well, just like, what if this is an argument with someone out the gate and like, you don't really know their... You could try and get very, become sensitive. You can figure that out. And like, you know, after the first few exchanges... Yes. Anyway, not directly related, but words to live by. Or at least words to argue with. <laughs> okay, um, so what does that mean? This means just as light has superiority power and dominion over darkness, so that a little physical light banishes a great deal of darkness, which is thereby inevitably superseded as a matter of course and necessity. That's a lot of words. So is much foolishness of the klipa and sitra achra, skip the parentheses for a moment, inevitably driven away by the wisdom that is in the divine soul in the brain, whose desire it is to rule alone in the city and to pervade the whole body in the manner already mentioned by means of the three garments, thought, speech, and action of 613 minutes as I explained earlier. So the same way that a little bit of light banishes darkness, so too a little bit of wisdom banishes much folly. <coughs> So the first thing I want to point out is that wisdom here and folly here are a reference to what? What does the text think wisdom and folly are referring to? Okay, I mean, not specifically, okay, but, but yeah. It, the wisdom is something that is in the divine soul, right? So it's something about the divine, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's something about the divine soul, right? So something godly. What? Mm, not really. We're going to get to Yitzhak Dovitzar in chapter 13. It's something to do with the godly soul, right? So we're just going to be the generic word, it's godly. And then the, 
the, the foolishness is what? The foolishness is something of the klip and sitrachor. So we're using the words wisdom and folly to kind of stand in for godliness, holiness versus klipa, sitrachor, unholiness. Which is interesting. Which I think that, that itself deserves some, some elaboration on, but we'll come back to that. Let's go back to the analogy. The analogy is light and darkness. So I'm going to ask you the following question, and I want you to think before you answer, because you don't want to make a fool of yourself. It's being recorded. Okay. Does the turning on of the lights result in the removal of the darkness? No. No. So you first nodded, which was clever because, you know, it's being recorded. Well, now I point that out. And then you thought about it, and then you actually said out loud the opposite of what you initially thought. So would you care to share your thought process? Well, I didn't think before I nodded. You followed my instructions. You didn't speak, though, before you thought. And then the darkness hasn't disappeared. The darkness is not gone. It still could be there. It's just that the light doesn't take it over. Okay. One of the great philosophical mysteries is that when you eat a donut, the kind that you know, police officers eat, not the kind that you eat for Hanukkah, what happens to the whole? <laughs> when you eat the donut... What happens to the whole? Another profound philosophical question. Another profound philosophical question is as follows. If you have a net, net is full of holes, right? And you think that when you cut something, you make more holes, right? But when you cut a net, you end up with fewer holes. Okay, the, issue is, the issue is that we have a problem. I've mentioned this before in other classes. We have a problem with there's reality and there's language. And there are ideas, three different things, right? Okay. In language, we have something which is called a noun. What is a noun? Wrong. What? A noun is a category of word. That's what it is. It's a category of words. No, no, this is very important. It's a category of word. It's not a noun. Table is a noun. Table is a word that makes reference to this thing here. We must differentiate between words and reality. Okay? It's very important, okay? This is what creates the confusion, okay? Now, do words make direct reference to reality? No, words make reference to reality via ideas, right? So the word makes reference to an idea, and the idea is some sort of model of reality, right? So there's this, and then we have a concept of what that is in the realm of like human use, like what kind of piece of furniture it is. And then we have a word that makes reference to that, right? So table makes reference to a concept of table, which makes reference to the way we are relating to what this is. Good? Is it correct to call this plastic? 
Assuming that's what it is. Let's assume that's what it is. I was going to say wood, but this part is wood. This is plastic, yeah? But we didn't, didn't we just say it's table? Ah, because there's it, and then there's the concept. So when I was thinking about it in terms of its function, its furniture, right, the concept, right, I'm thinking of one kind of, con- I'm really into it using one concept. When I'm modeling it in my mind in terms of the materials it's made of, different concept, and I have different words for different concepts, even though it is just it. It is itself, whatever it is. Good? Okay. <coughs> this creates a problem when something is missing, when we have an absence, because absences aren't there, <laughs> are they? We saw the no, 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 we're doing it. Like, in reality, there's this, yeah, there's that, right? Then we can get psychological, right? There's all sorts of stuff that we're feeling and experiencing, right? Okay, good. What about my twin brother? Do you have a twin brother? I do not. <laughs> Can you imagine the living hell life would be if I had a twin brother? Well, if you were anything to say, no. <laughs> All right. My, my, kids, my, my kids have a, a story tape in Hebrew that they like listening to. Um, and I, I don't remember what the whole story is, but at one point, there's, there's like the, the character who like is kind of like, he's like a, he's incidental to the story, but he's like the narrator of the story. He's kind of semi participant, someone. Anyway, so he's like a little funny guy who has a, who has a sheep as his sidekick. It's a, you know, it's a Haredi story tape. What do you want? Anyway, so here's a sheep as a sidekick. He loses the sheep, he finds the sheep, and, uh, and he says something to the effect of, um, there's only one like you, he has a sheep, there'll never be another one, and no one needs another one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway. Um, you know, so there's, yeah, but, but like, I don't, like, the twin brother that I don't have, right, the uranium that's not floating in this room, um, there's no uranium floating in this room. No, it's just there's this thing out there. Oh, there is a thing out there. That is true. That's not abs. There is a thing, right? Okay. The gorilla that's not, you know, rifling through your purse, right? All those things, just they're not part of reality, right? So if we're just dealing with a level of reality, like, there's nothing to relate to. It's just, there isn't. But... We can conceptualize the concept of it not being there. So we have a concept of its absence, even though there's no reality of its absence. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean it's there. It means it exists. What? Because you said... I don't want to get to darkness yet. Leave darkness alone. There is something there. Okay? Right? The thing that isn't there is not part of reality. Who says it exists at all? Because how would you know about it? Okay, so, so that's what I'm trying to differentiate. I'm, I'm, so, so we want to be very, very careful. Just because there's a concept of something doesn't mean that thing exists outside the fact you can conceive of it. Outside the fact, in other words, I want to, I'm, uh, out, I, I, don't, I want to use the notion of existence as distinct from the fact that you can conceive of it. Just because you can conceive it, we're not going to call that for the purposes of this class existing. I realize that it exists as a mental construct. That, that's what I'm talking about. For our purposes. So, a seven-headed purple um, mushroom which davens um, with beautiful davening, right? Doesn't, like, there's no such thing, right? And just because I can, like, conceive it in my mind doesn't make it that there is such a thing in reality, okay? Then, so, but, so, the, 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 the non-existence of something is not part of reality, 
However, I can conceptualize its non-existence, right? And sometimes the non-existence of something is very significant. For instance, rocks are unable to see. Blind people are unable to see, right? But there's a very big difference, which is that blind people, the fact that no sight is in existence has tremendous significance, right? Whereas the fact that a rock doesn't see, we just don't, we don't pay attention, right? So we have now, if a, we have a, we, we've conceptualized the non-presence of sight in the rock very differently than we conceptualize the non-presence of sight in a person. And because we've conceptualized it so differently, we have a different word for it, right? Most of us, unless we meant it in some kind of like poetic, metaphoric sense, generally wouldn't go around calling rocks blind. How do we know that rocks We're going to take it for granted. Don't have Neither does God, and he can see. There's a different type of seeing. Okay. Maybe rocks but. have a different <laughs> this is why I said we're not getting into it. Like once you start entertaining things, just remember, anytime you ask a question and you take the question seriously, it tends you down a road you might not want to go down. What? How do you, how do you live? I feel like that's your brain. You have to make decisions about which questions. It's like people who come to a new city and they're tourists. Right? They just have to decide which streets they want to go down and which streets they'll save for later and realize that they never get to all the streets. You can't go to all the cafes in Paris. Maybe you can, I don't know. But you can't go to all the cafes in the whole world. There's too many of them. You can't meet all the people. So you have to, you know. Yeah. Okay. Goes back to that whole, like, you know, maturity thing. Being willing to let go of things. Opportunity costs. Yeah. Okay. So, we, so, the rock doesn't see. The blind person doesn't see, but we conceptualize it very differently. In fact, we conceptualize the blind person not seeing as something wrong. That's usually how we think of it, something wrong with the person, although there's a movement not to think of it that way, but we're not going to go there, which is, right? Because we tend to think of the person when everything's working properly does see. So if the person can't see, there's something wrong. And so we start thinking of how to fix it, right? Or how to accommodate that, or how to work around that, or whatever, right? Whereas with the rock can't see, it's just like, well, rocks don't see. That's just the way it is, right? Going back to the donut. Is the donut actually in the hole? Is there any donut in the hole of the donut? Is there any donut around the donut? No. Is there... You have a donut. Just picture a donut in your mind, yeah. Is there a donut around the donut? No, yeah. Obviously not, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, we don't give a special name for the around the donut where there's no donut because it's just kind of obvious to us that around something isn't the thing, right? You know? Outside of the city is not the city. Outside of the house isn't the house. Outside my body isn't my body, right? Just kind of obvious, right? So the absence of something beyond itself is just kind of like a given, and we don't really tend to think of it as this new concept. But the fact that inside of something, there's an absence of it is like, ooh, interesting. <laughs> and, we, and therefore we have a new concept called a hole or a cavity. Think about a map. We're very comfortable with the idea of like, you know, here's a country. And the country has a border. I'm like, then it's no longer that country. I'm like, that's okay. Like there's, like, there's an absence of United States to the north. And that's why Canada can be there. Although the Canadians probably think the reverse. There's an absence of Canada to the south, and that's where the United States can be there, right? In Europe, this gets very messy because the countries aren't very happy with the absences of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? I think it became more okay. 
going good for 70 years, more or less. We'll leave Russia out of this discussion. Um, but then, and I always forget the name of this country, but if you go look at a map of Africa, you'll notice, if you look at South Africa, what? Got me. I don't remember. The little one. I, don't, I really don't remember what it's called. But there's a little country in the middle of South Africa. <laughs> like, what's it doing there? In, but it's not... In, see, the thing is, like, there's, a, like, there's South Africa, South Africa, South Africa, and there's beyond South Africa. And, like, obviously, South Africa isn't beyond South Africa. That doesn't make it... It's obvious. We don't think of a special thing. But all of a sudden, like, you're... Inside, and then, like, inside of South Africa, there's no South Africa anymore. It's like, that's weird. There's, like, a hole in South Africa. So, but in reality, it's just not South Africa. The same way the United States is in South Africa, right? And the Pacific Ocean is now South Africa. That country is also just not South Africa, but because it's surrounded by South Africa, it makes us conceptualize it very differently. And so we have this, like, what happens to the whole of the donut when you eat the donut? It's like, what happens to the outside of the donut when you eat the donut? That, like, the, all the stuff that is in the donut, what happens to it when you eat the donut? Nothing, because you didn't eat it. Because <laughs> it's just not donut. So it's like, because the, the thing is, in reality, it's just, there isn't a thing called the donut hole. It's just a concept in your... It's you conceptualizing the absence of donut in a very different way than you conceptualize the absence of donut. Rabbi, you know that they make donut holes, right? Yes. <laughs> Going back to language, concepts, reality. Out. It's not how they make them. <laughs> they actually not. If you know how to make a... You know, that's, not how you, that's not how you... Do you know how to make a, a donut or a bagel properly? You... If you're making... If you're making them by hand, you... Oh, you, you don't thumb. You put your thumb in. Use the thumb. That's what keeps them from... Because there's other kinds of breads where you attach them and then you can see that kind of like little attaching point. But what you do is you make a ball and you stick your thumb through and then you kind of go around like that. Mm. That's what makes them... Yeah. Anyway, little baking cooking lesson. Okay. Okay. So now... Now we have words. And... Um, Guess what kind of words we use when we want to refer to anything? We use nouns. So people like to say nouns refer to people, nouns are a person, but we know they're words. They refer to concepts, right? So, but here's the thing, right? I'm going to give you some stuff which is not a person, a place, or a thing, and you tell me if these are nouns, right? Okay? Freedom. Is that a person? No. Is it a place? Is it a thing? Yeah. It's a concept. It's like a thing, like a table's a thing? No, it's just, it's a concept, okay. What about running? Is running a noun? Well, we have a special thing where we turn, we turn verbs sometimes into nouns when we want to talk about the concept of the thing, such as, I enjoy running, which is false, by the way. I don't. <laughs> um, but, right? I enjoy ice cream, I enjoy... Right, by the way, if you ever wonder what kind of, what part of speech a word is, think about what you can replace it with. You replace, you can only, in a sentence, you want to replace a word with other like kinds of words. You can replace nouns with nouns, you can't replace, right? I like fast, doesn't make sense, right? I like tall, right? Doesn't make sense, right? I like because, doesn't make sense, right? But I like running makes as much sense as I like ice cream. So if ice cream is a noun, we're using running as a noun, so we've turned the verb into a noun. There's a special word for that, which I think is gerund, but don't get me, we're not like an expert in grammar. Could be wrong on that. Um, so basically a noun is any word that refers to the concept of anything. That's really what we're doing with it, right? Right? Causality. 
There's a noun. What does causality refer to? The concept of causing. The concept that if not for A, then not B. But because of A, therefore B. Right? Which is a very abstract concept that people have a hard time with fully grasping. But because it is nonetheless something we conceptualize, we have a word for it. Right? Googling. Yeah. But becomes A. Any verb. Any verb can then be turned into when you talk about the concept of doing the thing. Right? which creates a messy thing in language that you can start, you think things can be grammatically very sensible, but not very sensible when you move outside of language, right? You've played like ad-libs where you can like put a noun. And if you really put a noun, grammatically it makes sense, right? But like, um, I love, like, I love riding my book to the grocery store in order to buy hamsters is grammatically correct, but utterly me- silly, right? And sometimes they're not just silly, sometimes they're just downright incoherent, right? There's a famous um, limerick, one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight back to back. They faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A dead policeman heard the noise and tried to rouse the two dead boys. All of that is like incoherent. It makes no sense conceptually. But grammatically, it's fine because every part of speech fits together with every other part of speech nicely. This means that we have to be very careful. So now, go back to my original question. It was in words. So darkness, darkness is a word, right? But words, what kind of word is it? It's a noun, so it's referring to a concept. What is, the, what is darkness? It is a concept. What is the concept of? Lack of, lack of light. I wouldn't say absence. I would say lack because we do use it in a relative way as well, right? You know, we would say that things are dark even if there's not a total absence, but even a relative absence. So a lacking of light, whether partial or absolute, is the concept of darkness. Now, but here's the thing. In reality, is there such a thing in reality? No. No. There's just, in other words, in other words, right, there's, like, going back, there's, it's like the hole in the donut. But when the, when the lack of light is conceptually significant, we conceive of it, and we conceive it in many different ways, and then we have a word to label it, right? That's very important, okay? Um, so when you turn on the light, by definition, there's light, which by definition means... There's no darkness. Now, what is, it, what is the idea of result? What is a result? I said, does turning on the light result in the darkness disappearing? No. What is resulting? What does it mean something results? Yeah, something, right, there's some notion of one thing. What? I don't think that's I think it was, I mean, we have a recording, so if someone wants to do a recording, check. But I remember intending to use resulting. Does the turning light result in... Either way, either way it would work also because driving. Driving also has the notion that there's still two distinct things, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, like, does the woman giving birth result in her becoming a mother? Yes. Really? It results in her becoming a mother? What does it mean to be a mother? What is it just the meaning of being a mother, becoming a mother? Having a child. Having a child. How does one have a child? By giving birth to them. <laughs> so you're just, like, saying, saying that you are a mother means you're just saying that you are someone who? A child. So giving birth to someone is the same thing as? Right. It's not one thing, right? There's, not, there's, no, there's no resulting going on, is there? It is the same thing. It is the same thing, right? This, 
And the problem is like when we speak, we don't often really care about whether we're being this precise or not. And it usually doesn't matter because we're usually talking in such ways that we're all kind of having the same sense of things. And so it's not a big deal. But when you get into things that are not necessarily so intuitive, it becomes tricky because you can say something and it's very misleading. For instance, um, the result of um, leaving dough in the oven for a long period of time is that it bakes. If the oven is on, right? But my leaving it in the oven is one thing, right? And it baking is another thing, right? Those are not the same thing, right? Hence the oven needing to be on. As opposed to me like not leaving it in the oven, me leaving it on the, stu- me leaving it on the countertop. Thought I, thought I put it in the oven. Will not result in it baking. Or if I forgot to turn on the oven, right? Um, so some things, we might refer to them by different things and even th- think of them casually in terms of like a causal way. But if you think about it, it's really just saying the same thing, just describing another, it from another, another angle. Or let me give you this way. If I pay back the money I owe, is that, the, is that cause the person to recollect the money that they were owed? Or is that literally the same thing, just talking like, he's getting back the money he was owed. Is the same, it's his perspective on me paying back the money I owed him, right? Which is why if you, in your business, what you consider to be an expense, someone, the other person's business considers to be a revenue, right? Is the baking bread an example of a result? Yeah, I, put, I took the dough. I opened the oven door to an oven, and I stuck it in the oven, and I used the self-control not to open the oven for an hour or however long it takes. That's me doing my thing. Then, because I did my thing, the dough is able to experience the heat for a sufficient amount of time to allow it to bake. Right? One thing, another thing, right? For instance, if I put, this, if I, if I, again, I don't put it in the oven, it's not gonna bake, it doesn't matter the oven's on, right? Um, and by the way, I have to leave it there, right? If I put it in and then come back and take it right out again, right? Or as my kids sometimes like do that, like, open the oven every five minutes so that the heat can't stay constant. So you get like this really weird, no, don't, don't do that when you're baking. It's not a good idea. The result is from your perspective, but from the... No, it's a, to, no th- those are two different things, right? The, what, there's what I'm doing, there's what the dough is doing, and one depends on the other, okay. But, like, the money, if it's changing hands, I'm losing it, they're gaining it. That, that's what it means. It's the same thing, right? That's what payment is, right? Um, buying and selling are literally the same thing, just depending on... Right. Okay. So the introduction of light is the same thing as saying that there's no longer an absence of light or lack of light, right? And since darkness is just a word to refer to our concept of a lack of light, then does it really make sense to say that one is really driving away the other, pushing away the other, resulting in the other's disappearance? Mm-hmm. It's not really like that, is it? Can you repeat that? It's in, the introduction of light is the same thing as saying what? That there isn't an absence or lack of light. But there isn't. The absence of light that was previously there is no longer there, right? The container was empty, and now I filled, filled it with something. Well, so... Is, so is it the same thing? Because I filled it, that's, that's what causes this other thing for it to no longer be empty? Or filling it is the same thing as it no longer being empty? Well, but in that case, when you described these other examples, you're saying like it's kind of 
ridiculous in general to say that um, anything results in anything because the way that we use results... No, no, no. There are things. Like me putting something... In me, the example of me leaving the dough in the oven mm-hmm. and then the bread it's baking... That or that's that's two different things, right? Those are, well, there's one thing and another thing, right? Um, but we would still say that you, having a child results in you can say that's one, one be, right, right. I'm not I'm not saying we all need to start becoming like lawyers and philosophers in how we speak. What I am saying is that when you get into something where the concepts become very very subtle and especially become counterintuitive. You need to think very carefully about what you mean. Now, you run into a problem is that no matter how precise you are with language, language is never going to be as precise as concepts. And so you run into this question is, do you want to be, allow yourself a little bit of leeway with the language as long as we're clear on the concepts, or do you want to insist on trying to get as precise a language as possible? So let me give you an example. Think about how normal people speak versus how lawyers speak. Lawyers speak that way because lawyers are working off of an assumption that the other person will try to make their words mean what they didn't mean. Which is the, ap- the exact opposite of how regular speech operates. So once we have this whole discussion, we can go back to saying light drives away darkness and you know, light result. We can say whatever we want. I don't care. It's, like, it's not a word purity test. It's just we want to be clear that, that we don't mean the concept of result. In the, in the, 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 using the word result or drive is a figure of speech. We don't actually refer to the concept of one phenomena, which then causally affects another phenomena. That's not what's happening. As long as we're clear on that, you can use whatever wording you want. Okay? It's fine to call the donut hole a thing, right? As long as you like, don't take it way too seriously and start like spending all of, you know years of your life philosophizing about what happens to the hole when you eat it, because like, just the hole's just there's like no donut there. That's all. Like you didn't. Hey, if you eat the donut, what happens to the stuff that's not the donut? I guess nothing. <laughs> that's like not. So what's darkness? A lack of light. Well, the introduction of light means that there isn't that same lack of light. That's what it means. It's not one thing driving away the other, pushing away the other, resulting in the other. It's not a conflict of two things going on. It's just there was a lack. And I remember that's, that even itself was weird to say because this means the, the light wasn't there and now the light is there. But the lack, the, 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 that fact that light was not there was conceptualized by our mind as some significant thing that we have a concept for it and we labeled it. And okay, that's very nice. But there's nothing there that had to be pushed away or dissolve or disappear or fade away. Yeah. So in answer to your original question, nothing happens. That's right. Okay. That's right. Nothing happens. So what... What happens as a result of turning on the light? The light's on. That's what happens. What about the darkness? I mean, darkness wasn't anything to begin with. Now, in your mind... That seems very significant, right? Because darkness really... Bo- right? The fact that I couldn't see because the light was off... I conceptualize that as a very significant thing because it affects how I relate to the world, right? Go back to the blind person. The fact that a person can't see makes it very hard for them to navigate around the world, around society. Whereas rocks, being just inanimate objects, doesn't really seem to bother anybody that they can't see. So here, though, right, we talk about banishing darkness. Uh, Obviously, that's more of like a so, symbolic. So... Do you think that the words... So he uses some words in the Hebrew, okay? Um, Yisrael, it is superior. Shlita, control, memshala, dominion. 
Doicha, it's pushed away. Me'elav or me'elav automatically. Now, the, again, the problem thing is that, that we use language and then we always have to think, like, what are we, are, how strictly are we using the words? Does he really mean to say that there is this thing called darkness, there's this thing called light, and the light is so powerful, a little bit of it banishes the darkness, darkness goes running and screaming for its mommy. Because it was screaming and screaming for its daddy, its daddy would say, get back in there. Do you think the author ever thinks that that's what we're, we're describing? Like, that, that's what happens between light and darkness? No. What's darkness? It's a concept. It's a word that refers to the way we conceptualize the absence of light. There isn't, a, there isn't any element of reality. Or to put it another way, did Hashem have to create darkness the way he had to create light and water and trees and fish? No. No. Because light is a concept of reality and darkness is a concept, but it is not linked right, to reality. Right, right. Just like Hashem doesn't have to create the rock and then make it blind. If he creates the rock and doesn't grant it the power of sight, it's just blind. Then it doesn't see. So and by the way, the Rambam says the same thing about blind people. That it's not like Hashem goes around and like says, "You will be blind." It's just he didn't go around saying sight. Sight. Uh, so is the assumption that the I mean I don't even know maybe it was written we just had darkness way before light existed. Well, interestingly, in the Chumash. And I'm emphasizing the Chumash because you start reading in the, in the prophets. It's more complicated. Let's just read the Chumash. It doesn't mention the creation of darkness. It says, In the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, depending on if you read like Rashi and the Ramban. Dispute. Right? Very Jewish. Right? You can't even get through the first verse without agreeing <laughs> with them on what it means. But okay. And the world was in a state of Tehu and Vahu, which is... Again, we have to dispute what tohu and bohu means, but that's the way the world was. So what's that one possibility of what it means? What? what? A state of astonishing potential. <laughs> or, sorry, sorry. Yeah, another, uh, sorry, 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 a state of bewildering potential because it, it, it could be anything, and yet when you look at it, it's, it, you can't really figure out what it is because it could be anything. Okay. Um, I'll just illustrate what this means. This is a table but really it's just a piece of plastic. But really plastic is just... Petroleum. Petroleum is just hydrocarbons. And hydrocarbons are just... Hydrogen. Hydro- just protons, neutrons, and electrons. And protons, neutrons, and electrons are just electrons, quarks, and gluons. And protons, and, and, and pro- electrons, quarks, and gluons are just what? They're just, they're just, you know, some sort of, some sort of, some sort of semi-concrete manifestation of an energy potential. And what's an energy potential? I have no idea because it could be a table, or it could be a tree, or it could be a bird, or like it could be. So, like, when you start relating to like that fundamental level of just there is something that can be, but it could be anything. You are bewildered, and you don't know what it is. That's how the Ramban explains it. Um, Rashi says it was like astonishingly empty. You're like. There's like nothing going on here. It's just like, you know, it's like, like someone who lives in the city and they go out to the desert for the first time and they're like, the quiet is really loud and bothersome because just like, there's nothing, like, there's no stuff. Like, right? So Shem creates the world and there's nothing, there's nothing tangible. Anyway, and then it goes to speak about, um, and then it speaks about there was darkness. So 
Now, that's not a proof because we don't go around like interpreting verses that, you know, strictly speaking, we have a tradition of how to interpret them. But it doesn't mention anywhere in the biblical the description of creation in Bereshis that Hashem created darkness. It does mention that he created light. light. And it does mention the separation of light and darkness, whatever that means. There's no creation but the separation. Yes. Okay. Tohu v'bahu. Tohu is from the Ramban says it's it, no sorry I mix up tohu tohu v'bahu is, is more Ramban would say it's more like bewildering tohe is to be bewildered and bohu is about what is in it every everything is in it and you're bewildered because whenever time you think you figured it out you realize it's not really that because it could be anything else um, and then then Rashi says tohu v'bahu is um, is astonishingly empty. Yeah. Astonishingly empty or bewilderingly bewildered by the fact that it could be anything. Thanks. Anyway. Oh, so astonishing potential. Yeah, I mixed it up. It's bewildering potential or astonishingly void. Who says bewildering potential? The Ramban. I like that a lot. Yeah. But if Hashem separated the light and darkness, mm-hmm. isn't that presuming that darkness is a Well, it depends what it means. For instance, a simple, straightforward reading of Rashi's interpretation is simply that Hashem established times when we can expect light and the times when we can expect darkness, which is fine because we're not talking about a thing. We're just talking about the expect the absence of light or the lack of light, which we call, and then he called that night, as opposed to being like random and arbitrary. All of a sudden there's light and then there's no light and there's light and there's no light. Like, when, is, when, when is it going to be light? I don't know. Oh, now it's light. No, now it's not light. Right. It'll be very confusing, right? It's good everything has its like, you know, set time. Right, but it's a conceptual opposite. There's nothing in reality that's the opposite of light, because an absence doesn't isn't part of reality. When Hashem creates a room, He doesn't have to then create that it's dark. If there's no light, well, then there's no light. That's just what. If you notice that there's no light, you'll conceptualize that there's no light, and you'll make a name for it. And you'll call it choshech or darkness or whatever language you speak. So the intro. What? <laughs> but you can conceptualize darkness as if mm-hmm. it still has to. That's right. It, that now it's interesting. Why? Let's talk about why you can conceptualize darkness, because considering that there is no such thing. Because you know what light is. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know what light is, there'd be no such thing as darkness. It just that would just be what it is. Okay. Um. That's part of it. Oh, that's right. We do experience it. That is right. We do experience it. We experience the fact that we are not experiencing the light. That's true. You know why people like going out to the desert? Because they're experiencing the quiet. Other people, they don't like going out to the desert. They like going to the forest. Because although the forest doesn't have all the sounds of the city, guess what it does have? It has all sorts of sounds, lots of sounds, right? Right? Yes. One of the fascinating things is that if you have a sensory organ, you also get an experience for absences. That's kind of cool, isn't it? 
but it's still a creation. As in, it no. It's what happens is like you have a sensor and the sensor blinks when it senses what it's supposed to sense and when it doesn't blink what it, and when it doesn't, it doesn't blink and you experience both. It's blinking and it's not blinking, right? So when you're, when you, when there's no light, you experience an experience of not being able to experience the light. So you, it seems seem dark, right? When um, there's a lack of sound, you hear silence. Right, your foot, like, think about this, yeah? Does your foot hear the silence or do your ears hear the silence? Your brain. I, I know everything's processed in your brain, but I, I, I want to localize it. And there was, you hear silence? Yes, that's what I'm trying to tell you, is you hear silence. You do hear silence. And think about it, because your feet don't hear anything, right? If you're in a very loud room, okay, do your feet experience the loudness? No. And then it goes away when you go into the desert and everything's perfectly still? No, right? That's a difference you experience with your ears. ears. So there's a lack of hearing, and then there's silence. There's a lack of seeing, and then there's darkness. darkness. Those are not the same thing. Okay? So when you, in other words, like this, if you can experience something, you also have to be able to experience there's a corollary experience of not experiencing the thing. Otherwise, it's just like, like, right? So, and now, does that experience of darkness have, right, that really impact how we live our lives? For instance, when it's dark, you can't read books. When it's dark, you might have all sorts of emotional reactions to the fact that you can't see, right? And so because that experiencing that I'm not experiencing the light has profound effects on a person, right? that concept becomes very significant in our mind. It becomes very real to us. So real that we almost intuitively relate to it as if there really is a thing out there called darkness. But is there? No. No. Interesting. So now... What? Yes, you use your eyes to see darkness and you use your ears to hear silence. Is this referring to the powerful impact of darkness that light can override then? Oh, so then what happens? Since the darkness is not really a thing, it's just something that our minds conceive of very powerfully because we're not perceiving light sufficiently, right? And then maybe we react very much to, the, to that conceptualization of things. But what happens when the light is introduced? Does it have to conflict and battle and deal with the darkness? It feels like it. What? Maybe it feels like that, but it's not. Well, try it. Go into a dark room and turn on the light and see what no, happens. No, I'm, I'm not saying it actually does. Oh, I'm asking you, does it even feel like it? N- no, not that kind of light in dark. That's what I'm not talking about. There's that kind of light in dark. Okay? Unless you imagine. Oh, no. If you're imagining it, the darkness is really, you know, becomes like, oh, who knows what else. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, what's folly? Very good. So is there such a thing as folly? No. But can we conceptualize it? Yes. And in, a, in our conceptualization, does it feel very real to us? Mm-hmm. Okay. The only thing that exists is godliness. What's klipa? 
What is klipa? What's sitra achra? The absence of godliness. Mm. But you know what? Here's the cool thing about absences. They're not real. <laughs> right? Is there such a thing out there in reality of darkness? No. no, there's just light or the absence of light, right? The only thing that's real is godliness. What's klipa? Mm. But that absence of godliness, can you have some sort of concept of godliness not being here? And in your conceptualization, it can seem like very real and very substantive. So much so that you react to it and you feel emotions and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, okay. And how powerful could that be? Very. Until? Until godliness enters. And which point? It feels like it disappears, but it didn't even disappear. It kind of just seems like it was never there because it wasn't a thing. It's all how you perceive perception. Right. In other words, klipa is not real in the way godliness is real. Klipa's reality is like the reality of darkness. There really is an absence of godliness, but an absence of godliness is not a thing, Right. And it really is that we are experiencing that absence of godliness. And that affects us very powerfully. It drives us to want to sin and do all sorts of stuff, right? But it isn't a thing. There isn't a substance there called the absence of godliness. Okay, so then what happens if some godliness enters into your perception of that? Well, then all of that just... Yeah. And it's not even like it disappears, right? it would actually feel a little bit even different than it disappears. Like, it's like it was never there. It's just right. Think, think, about, think about the darkness. I want you to think about the physical darkness on two levels, on the sensory level and on the conceptual level. Like we're both beings, right? When we turn on the light, it, all, it feels like to our eyes, there was this blackness and the blackness went away and now there's this illumination, right? That's what it, that's what it feels like, right? Like everything used to be red and now it's green. Or everything used to be... Black, and now it's white. Okay. But as rational beings, right, does it feel like something left, feel to our rational mind, does it feel like something left and was replaced by something else? Or do our rational minds feel like something was missing and now it's here? The rational part, not, this, not the visual part. Like, and you want to know how you know? Because no one, no one asks themselves, well, where did the darkness go? How did it get out of the room? What happened? Like, you don't ask what happened to it. Why? Not you have an answer of what happened to it. You don't ask what happened to it because on, on, that, on that more rational part of our minds, we relate to it as if it's not a actual thing. Like, most normal people don't really ask the question what happened to the donut hole. Because on an intuitive level of reason, there is no such thing in reality as a donut hole. There's just, that's the shape of the donut. So like, we asked what happened to the donut once you ate it, but you might not want to know the answer. Depends, you know, your, your gross tolerance level. But the whole question is just like, it's what people do when they, you know, have too much time on their hands. But we would ask where the light went because it would be the source is gone and that's therefore right. the light is right. gone. Right. We do ask that question because the light is real. And if the light suddenly shows up, we'll ask what brought it there. Because we, we, so, so when we're relating to things with the, with the mind, with the intellect, 
We relate to light as something real and darkness as something that is not part of reality. It's just something we conceptualize. When we're talking about the visual experience, though, they seem both to be the same. Yeah, that makes sense? Yes, no, if you don't get it, ask questions now, because then I'm going to take it to something much more abstract. I mean, I'm still having trouble picturing darkness is not a thing. Don't picture. Ask yourself. Imagine the youngest child you can think of that is still old enough to tell an adult, stop playing games. You know that age? There's an age where like you... Like, the, like you're the, 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 the adults are, like, playing games with the child's mind, and the child, like, says, stop it. Like, I can tell you're playing games. Okay. Think that age child. And imagine, yeah, you're in a dark room, and you turn on the light, and you ask the child, where did the darkness go? What do you think the response is going to be? <gasps> That's a good question. Or stop playing games with me. Like, they don't have to be a brilliant philosopher. Like, they, that part of the mind gets it. Even though on the visual experience level, I had one experience and that was replaced by a different experience, right? We, 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 we get that it's, you know. If you could heal the blind person, you don't know, like, what happened to his blindness? Where did it dis- I mean, you might say that in the words. We don't actually mean there was this thing. Like, now, if there's an infection, you do wonder where the infection went because the infection is like a little substantive thing that enters the body and blah, 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 right? So then what is the Alter Rebbe saying about the reality of Klippa versus the reality of godliness? Is there a reality of Klippa? No. No. Is there a reality that godliness is absent? No. Yeah. Yeah, that's how Klippa is. Yes, but that's what, that's what Klippa is. Okay. Is that reality conceptualized? Yes. And then experienced very powerfully? Yes. And is that the source of all of our unholy desires? Uh-huh. Mm. And what if the lights go back on? The godliness re-enters your perception. That what happens to those desires? They're just not there. And it will feel as if they're just not there. But the mind will perceive it as if they were never really there to begin with, right? Like, you, sometimes you realize that you never wanted the thing to begin with. You have a desire for something. And then not only you stop desiring it, so on the level of experience, you just stop desiring it. But on the level of the mind, you realize you never desired it. Like, right. like you never actually wanted it. So what happens to the Bainani after they've davened and there's this desire of the animal soul towards something ungodly and the mind rules over the heart and it moves it towards not it's unhealthy, not it's not practical, not any of these worldly considerations, but this is ungodly having that they've just experienced godliness that's fresh in their memory. What does that do? That's like turning on the light and the darkness is discovered to be not, not anything. And so it's not like they, so it feels on the experiential level like they stop desiring it. But on the rational level, it actually is experienced as if I never wanted it. Now, could that desire show up again 10 minutes later? Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. This does not fundamentally, it hasn't made them free of the underlying klipa, but it has, but it, that's what frees them of the klipa influencing their behavior. And that's what it's saying. That, that's the, that's the, 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 the relationship between godliness and klipa is like that of light and darkness. So much so later on in Tanya, the altar actually asked the question, how is it possible for klipa to cover godliness at all? 
since ultimate godliness really is everywhere, darkness being in, not being an actual thing, how could darkness can't really cover up for light? Like in reality, darkness is the absence of light, the lack of light, but the light actually isn't there. But the truth is with God is that God is, and godliness are everywhere, so then how does Kleep exist at all? And that's what has to get into that later on, but we're not gonna go that. We're just gonna take it for granted that the Kleep is a reality of God, not godliness not being there, which itself is questionable. Um, and so that's what he means. It's actually even more so that this, the, the, the drives of the animal soul completely dissipate now, where is the sense of godliness of our godly soul? It's in our mind. So let's put these two things together. As human beings, the mind rules the heart. The relationship between godliness, i.e. wisdom, and klipa, i.e. folly, is like that of light and darkness. Well, is this even a fair fight? If the klipa is darkness, and it only has access to my heart, and godliness is light, and it's present in my mind, there's no contest. Now, the, 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 it still, you know, it still manifests itself. There's still the, the experience of the desire, but then it fades away. But the power for all of that becomes because of the clarity of godliness, right? That, the, the godly soul's sense of God, that's the wisdom, has remained clear to them in the person's mind. If that's not there, none of what we're describing here would work, which is why to us, it often does feel like a real struggle. Later on, or sorry, earlier in chapter nine, the Alter Rebbe established that the place that the animal soul is access to the person, its resting place is in the heart only. It doesn't, reside in, it doesn't reside in the mind. It can enter the mind to use the mind, but it doesn't live there. That's not its point of entry into the person. It's only in the point of entry is in the emotional drives. And the entry point of the godly soul is in both the mind and in the heart, but from the mind to the heart. So... It, and therefore, like, because of that, so A, the mind rules the heart, and B, the godly soul is like light, and the animal soul is like darkness. So in, 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 the author was trying to describe is that this is not in any way a real fight. It, it has to play itself out, right? So you're not, as again, like I used the example of like you're playing chess with a child, like you still have to move the pieces to win, <laughs> but it's not a real game. The conclusion is foregone. But now what if the light of your godly soul isn't in your mind? What if your mind isn't clear about the truth of the greatness of God? Then everything we've described doesn't happen. And it's that after effect that, that really what makes this person the bane in you. So the big, big challenge is to get that clarity. That's right. Questions? Yeah. There's so so there's layers there's layers of the heart. Mm-hmm. For for our purposes, we're just talking about heart, which is the, 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 the part of the person where they have that emotional drive of I want, I care, I feel, right? That part of it. Um, where they feel themselves in relation to reality. If you go very deep into that, um, you can get at very deep parts of the truth of the person or their, their fundamental connection to God can exist there also or whatever. But okay. but that's, that's not what you mean is the, the emotional yeah, 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 yeah. Um I missed one classical video of the what's it called? But are you saying that the reason this isn't a real fight is because once the lights are on, like that 
it's as though like the heart stuff, the klipa never even existed. It's not actually right. fighting it. It's like, right, right. It's not actually clarity. fighting. Right. It's not a battle. It's, just, it's not really a battle. Okay. Right. It's not really a battle because what happens? The person feels this desire, so they have the thought. I'm aware of the desire. They. If it's something permitted, they'll consider whether it's actually reasonable to do it, given that they want to serve God. But if it's not, then in their mind, they're absolutely clear, like, I have no space in my life for anything that, that distracts me from what my life is about, which is connecting to Hashem. Plus, my sense of connection to Hashem is illuminated by my godly soul, which means I have a sense of godliness. And given, given the fact that my heart is receptive to a clear mind, and given that the desires of the animal soul are rooted in darkness, as soon as that is... As soon as that person's awareness reaches that point, the, the, it, the whole desire disappears, dissipates. And on a, on a, on a more, like, more rational level, it, they have the sense, I never wanted that to begin with. So it's more like a chain reaction. It's very much a chain reaction. Now, there, you do need to have a level of conscientiousness in how you live your life. Because if you don't, you'll slip out of the state. I, I want to be very clear. I don't mean to say that anything is an autopilot. People can never live on autopilot. But it's a matter of just maintaining a kind of conscientiousness to the state of mind that the person has as they came out of the prayer. And about living life with that kind of, a, and a person who's living life as a human being with that kind of maturity. The real battle is the achieving that state in prayer. As the Zohar says, shas krav, the time of prayer is a time of war. Because the animal soul, and when a person starts praying in this way, the animal soul knows that then that's like, you know, that's its last chance. Because if the person's successful in the prayer, they're going to lose, at least for the foreseeable future. And so that's where the animal soul puts up the biggest fight. So the real fight of the Bainini, the classic Bainini that we have in chapter 12 of Tanya, is the fight to pray successfully. The afterwards, it might feel like a little bit more of a struggle maybe because there's, you could, you're aware of that conflict, but it's not. It, it's, so, it's so stacked in favor of the godly soul, it's a no contest. So it's, it's not like, the, we're going to go on the next thing, we're going to talk about, it's, still not, it's not like a tzaddik, we're going to talk about how this is not a tzaddik, this is still a bainini. That's going to be the next chapter, the next paragraph we're going to do. But it's important to understand that it's really, it's, this is so much heavily in favor of the godly side that the altar has to go on to even say that, explain how the person's not a tzaddik. This is a person that, like, if this is how you experience life, you cannot sin. Not because you don't have the free will to sin, but because like, nothing inside you would allow you to get to that place. Does he talk about the battle to pray, like to pray successfully? He mentions it very briefly. We've had a few classes about that. I don't know. Were you here when we did this? Probably not. Okay. 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 Um, There are other places where it describes it more at length. Um, One of the things that happens, the Altarbe doesn't talk so much about how to pray. Um, His son, the Mitlarabbo, was the first Rebbe who really did get out more into detail about how to go about praying. He even wrote a few tractates on how to do that. Some guidance. They're not so easy to implement. The fifth Chabad Rebbe kind of um, made a few other pamphlets about how to pray that are a little more, a little bit more grounded for like it was for the yeshiva students. Um, and to be fair, I think I mentioned this before, it's somewhat of a lost art because of Holocaust and communism killing off so many people. And it's one of those things that having a living person teach you how to do it, and it becomes very personal. Whatever. So we we spoke about it a little bit in general. Um, it doesn't. It don't mean that it's totally lost. I don't mean that it's impossible to do, but. And to be fair, historically, it's not the case that the overwhelming majority, the more you think about this, this kind, of a, this kind of a service has a kind of 
a selectivity to it, right? You have to have the time and the energy and the willingness and the sensitivity to engage in this, um, which is why later on Alter is going to give a different approach as to being a Bainini, not just this. This is, like I said, just the, the, the classic Bainini, like the... Um, and, and there's a tradition, although it's not said explicitly in Tanya, but it's alluded to, is that even the classic Bainini rarely is able to live their life such that the, the sense of after prayer is able to be enough for them and usually they need to rely on some of the other methods to bolster themselves. So think of it more as like a, a, a menu item in one's thing than actually just like, this is the way it is and if you're not doing this, then there's no... What does it mean that the heart has to be receptive to the... No, the heart is, by, by nature. Human beings' hearts are receptive to their mind, provided their mind is absolutely clear on the subject. You don't have to make your... If you're not an animal, you don't have to make your heart. If your heart really genuinely is not receptive, you are either a child and haven't sufficiently developed and matured, which is fine if you're age, like, you know, seven, or you should see a mental health professional because something is broken. Could you say the process over time of the daily davening? The contemplating, like how the whole contemplation thing works? No, no, no. Just the, like, so he gets a clear mind and then it affects... Because he has a clear mind and the mind rules the heart, the heart's receptive to the mind, and the godly soul resides in the mind and the animal soul acts as the person is in the emotions of the heart, plus the godly soul's sense of God is, is, is light, whereas the animal soul's desires are rooted in darkness. So coming out of prayer, that clarity remains in the mind. And so when a person has that conscientiousness, that self-awareness to kind of revert back to that clarity, then the desires of the animal soul never influence their actions, never influence their thoughts. And their influence in the speech is, they're, sorry, the influence of their speech, the influence in thought is only the point that they're aware of the desire and will consider doing something if it's permitted based on whether or not it will help them serve God more. And then beyond that, it has no realm of thought, and then they just let it go, because it's, it's, there's no place for it in their life, and that's the maturity of a human being's mind ruling their heart, and it's not real. And they have a sense that it's not real, because they have a sense of God, godliness is wisdom like light, and that the klipa is rooted in darkness. And, and when you sense the light, the darkness is just... It, it, feels like it, it feels like it's no longer there. And, and on that deeper, more rational sense, you sense that it wasn't there to begin with because it's not a thing. And so the person just moves on. And then the Klippa comes and tries again and tries again and tries again and tries again. Because it doesn't give up. And so the person does feel that, that nag of the Klippa at them. You know, sometimes more, sometimes less. But they're not. I would say even the word tempted is probably too strong of a word. They're not even tempted. But the power of all of that comes from the after effects of the prayer. It's not just a, I've decided and that's how I'm going to live my life and I'm going to make myself be that way. Like, that's not what he's describing here. Good? Is a lost art? Somewhat. It's not completely lost, but somewhat. It, I'm saying watching someone down looks the same as watching someone who isn't doing such a successful job at it. Uh, I, I don't mean to say it's totally lost. What I mean to say is like this. I mean, nowadays, if you were to think about some of the greatest Hasidim who are alive nowadays and good at davening and really daven, 
you just can't compare it to people who were trained to daven before World War II and before communism. Like, it's just... Like, it used to be that, the, like, the, 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 the... I'll give you an example. There was, there was, there was a chassid. There was a chassid. Um, and he... He would get up every morning and he would do the whole thing and he would daven. And it was normal for him to cry during davening. Because he was having an emotional reaction to the awareness of the infinite greatness of God and his presence, purely through his contemplation. That was not an unusual thing for the upper echelons of Hasidim. That doesn't exist. Like, like, that doesn't exist. You know, the, the, those who grew up after the Holocaust, after World War II, there's just something that doesn't, it's very rare to find that. So, I don't. I mean that in a relative sense. I don't mean it's impossible. I'm, I'm on the contrary. I'm. One, I very much push people to work on it. But, but yeah, a person has to be realistic, and then like, you know, it's not. You know, and to cry in prayer because you like. I don't know. You like are listening to music that's very moving to you, or singing songs very moving to you, or because you are undergoing a personal tragedy. I mean that is that's different but purely to reflect upon the fact that God is infinite and all is nothing in his presence. And your inability to truly grasp that brings you to tears without even realizing it's bringing you to tears. Like there were people who are like a generation removed from me. You know, I didn't know them personally, but I know people who knew them personally. And there weren't one and there weren't two, but they were in the, in, in the tens, in the hundreds of people like that. Not thousands, not millions. And now you find one or two people like that. So it's, yeah, there's something got lost. I mean, you can, is it have to, part of it has to do with transferring. I mean, also generation gaps are big. I mean, you don't realize, like, just in, in the way, so, like, it used to be the difference between one generation and another generation was very, very small, if anything. Like, you realize that you growing up in such a way that your parents did not grow up at all. And your parents grew up in a way that their parents didn't grow up at all. Right? But you go back to bef- you know, go back to the to, to, to the to like you know the early nineteen hundreds. It wasn't didn't wasn't like that to the same degree. You know, the guy who lived in the shtetl in, in, in Ukraine in Russia, he grew up so different than his father did, and his father versus his grandfather. And there's a way in which you can convey things when everyone's le- living in the same milieu and everyone's living the same thing. There's a there's a that. There's also the style of life was probably more conducive to contemplation. <laughs> Slower pace, things move slower. Ah. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying you can't do it and you shouldn't try to do it. I'm not saying. I'm, saying, I'm just saying that if you read stories about people who, you know, yeah, and I'm not saying you. And again, but but it just it's it's not comparable. I mean, there's other things also, like the level of Torah scholarship. Like nowadays, if you know, if you if you met somebody who knew half of the Talmud by heart, word for word, with the commentary of Rashi, like he's like a big big Rosh Hashiva. But 100 years ago, that was like an average Torah scholar. It was just different. Now, there were fewer average Torah scholars than there are now. Like, we have greater quantity of them, but that was considered an average level tier. Yeah, you know, your few basic things by heart. I was like, okay, like, that's... What did you do when you were a teenager? Like, what else did you do? You just sat there and learned Talmud and you knew it all by heart. Right? Yeah, the level of... Yeah, 
so that's a, but, okay. So, Be'ezus Hashem, next week we will start, we'll go back to the other side of the argument of kind of downplaying the impressiveness of the Baini, how he's not a tzaddik, he's not that so, you know, he hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're going to go back to that. We're going to keep like, doing this back and forth. And that's what we're going to, to be doing. Okay. We're not going to get into it all, like really learning any part of the art of praying. Not in this class. Not in this class. Not in this class. Um, if you want, there's a book. If you really want to like learn more about how to pray seriously, using the sitter and all that kind of stuff, there is a book called A Practical Guide to Davening. It's an orange cover. I don't know if the women's program has a copy. Um, and it's uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's a practical guide to davening, starting with basic stuff about like... And it's very much centered around the davening itself should itself be the thing rather than adding extra stuff to the davening. So it doesn't talk about like singing. It doesn't talk about that. It talks about like... like thinking about the meaning of the words, how to approach learning and thinking about the words, how to live your life in such a way that you're able to do the davening better. Um, I'll just give you like one like practical tip that, that's mentioned there. For many people, thinking about the meaning of the word while you're saying the word can be very distracting. It's just very hard to do that mentally. Um, and so um, one way to do that is to think about it, think about the word, think about what you said right after you said it rather than while you're saying it. It's like a practical tip because you're, um, it's not the only, so there's, there's, there's different things there. And in there, he also has some, some you know, guidance um, from, you know, about how to start approaching some of the more contemplative stuff as well. But at the end of the day, like when people write letters to the Rebbe about this, they're what do I say? You need to find a person to guide you personally. Um, and you can give advice. I'll just tell you one piece of advice that was commonly, that was given. Certain people would come and ask, like, I want to start contemplating in prayer or whatever. And they just, they didn't, like, the, the, the part of their mind you need to use was something that they were just so unfamiliar using. And so they would get training in contemplating Talmud first. Because Talmud is a little bit more grounded. It's talking about things that are a little more concrete. I once had a student in the men's program who wanted to learn to pray and this kind of stuff. I had a few. And um, he had the, this kind of issue that he was like, he was very into like kind of Eastern meditation relaxation techniques, but like using this mind in the context was like a very different kind of thing. And he just felt like he wasn't getting it. And I said, okay, like he was, he was pretty good in Gemara. I said, okay, you know the Gemara you're learning? Okay, so I told him like, how do you contemplate the Gemara you're learning? How to do that? And he did that for a while and got really good at it. And I was like, okay, so now let's move on to like stuff about God. But you see, like what you, the, 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 the second Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Basan, he wrote a, a, a discourse about this. And he said, like, the first layer, the, kind of the first stage a person reaches at in, in the prayer where you're contemplating is where you come to an acceptance that this is real. It's not a theory, it's not an idea, it's not a hobby, it's not a joke. It's real, and it has consequences. And you don't feel anything at all, just like that. In fact, you somewhat feel a little bit cold because it's like, it's just heavy. It's like, it's really real. It's not a joke. There really is a God. <laughs> a mitzvah really is connection to reality and a very really separates from reality. And it's just like, that's a heavy thing to come to accept as, as, as real. And like, and, and very often people like, sometimes like, you know, there's a process might have an unpleasant step that you need to go through. The first kind of realization that you have in prayer is that it's real, it's not a joke. And that has a certain 
kind of, I would say, almost negative associations with that, such as the gravity of it, the seriousness of it, the sense you all of a sudden feel very acutely like how unholy you really are. Because, like, it becomes just very clear what, if this is all really real and, like, how much self-centeredness and ulterior motives a person has and everything. And so they feel like almost like, how could I ever connect to any of this? How could I ever... There's this level of acceptance. Alter speaks of this on my mind, but he doesn't allow... That the person has to get through before they move on to other things like genuine interest and genuine desire and genuine emotion and crying and all that stuff. And and so that's something that's also put Spearson off. They're actually... It's working... But they're, they're not liking what it looks like when it's working in the beginning stage, so they back out. Mm-hmm. That's also part of it. You're not wanting to give up that. Yeah. That yeah. 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 So there's a, there's a lot of like. Oh. All right. single thing in your life to be decided on the rubric of whether it brings you closer to God or not? Well, you know what? Theoretically, Every, yeah. Theoretically, everyone would. In reality, do you really want to live like that?